Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... How a new timber mill in Finland is changing the face of sustainable forestry through its cutting-edge technology. I think the world has a lot to learn from the Finnish mills and from the Finnish industry, that's for sure. And I asked Damien Bradfield of WeTransfer what the Trust Manifesto is. If we just look at how much information we give away and how trusting we are of something that we don't actually trust, I think that's quite worrying. But first, Facebook's yet-to-be-launched cryptocurrency called Libra has suffered numerous setbacks. In recent weeks, seven of its partners quit the project, including Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and the high-profile payment startup Stripe. Then, the G7 warned that the global financial system is at risk from cryptocurrencies such as Libra, and unless it addresses their concerns, Libra may not get approval from the regulators. Thank you, Chairwoman Waters, uh, Ranking Member McHenry, and, and members of the committee. Thank you for to top it off, Facebook's boss, Mark Zuckerberg, is being grilled in America's Congress over the future of the cryptocurrency. The idea behind Libra is that sending money should be as easy and secure as sending a message. Libra will be a global payment system, fully backed by a reserve of cash and highly liquid assets. And to discuss this, I'm joined in the studio by Tim Cross, the Economist Technology Editor. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, Libra is struggling. What is the Libra Association and why can't they hold it together? Well, so the Libra Association is the group of companies that one day, assuming this thing launches, will be responsible for sort of governing the currency. So if we go back to the beginning, in June, Facebook and a bunch of other companies signed up to this Libra Association. There were 28 of them at the time, and it's headquartered in Geneva in Switzerland. And the idea is that Libra will be a sort of globe-spanning payments mechanism based to some degree, and we're not really sure to what degree, on similar sort of technologies to those that underlie cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but sort of tamed a bit to make it a bit more palatable for regulators. And the idea is that rather than Facebook being in sole charge of this thing, it's the Libra Association, of which Facebook is a member but only one member, that will govern how it works. It sounded so good. And like Geneva, Switzerland, neutrality, my heart swoons. It's so close to Basel. Why is everyone abandoning it? Well, it's hard to know for sure, but one of the patterns seems to be that Facebook has maybe sort of underestimated the size of the regulatory backlash to this. So you mentioned some of it. We've had that G7 report that you mentioned in the intro. We've had France saying pretty flatly that they're just not going to allow Libra to operate in France. 
we've had India say the same thing. And of course, given that one of the use cases of Libra is banking the unbanked and doing international remittances and stuff, India is a, a huge market. And there's been a lot of sort of regulatory heat even in America where it's based. So the rumor is, and it is only a rumor, that at least some of these companies left after some American senators wrote to them and essentially said, you know, this thing is going to have to be very, very tightly regulated and you need to be really careful associating with them. Now, why don't countries like Libra? I confess, I've spoken to an American banking regulator who was livid about the fact that it didn't actually indicate how it was going to handle its reserve currencies that it was going to hold and how it was going to handle its overnight value of it. It was very intricate. But again, we were talking at a karaoke bar in Tokyo at two in the morning. But it was such an intricate argument that I could barely follow it. Tell me, what is the main reason why financial regulators don't like Libra? So I guess there are sort of two answers to that. And the one that you got at 2 a.m. in the karaoke bar may not work all that well on the radio either. But the sort of broader, less technical answer is if you look at Facebook's pitch, it was always going to be quite a mountain for them to climb. So if you're a financial regulator, what you've essentially got is Facebook, which is one of the world's least trusted tech companies now, particularly among governments and regulators, popping up and saying, we're going to use something that's a bit like a cryptocurrency. And the word cryptocurrency, if you're a regulator, immediately makes you think of sort of fraud and scams and, and all kinds of, you know, sometimes quite dodgy, unregulated activity. We're going to use this technology to try and disrupt something that's pretty fundamental to you know, what it means to be a nation state, to the idea of currency and, and how money and finance is, is handled. So I think even from the start, it was a pretty difficult pitch for them to make. And Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg's line has been that, okay, they recognize that they're not exactly the ideal company to be fronting this kind of plan. But I think maybe they've underestimated the degree to which they really are not the ideal company to be fronting this kind of plan. And I think this maybe is, is one reason why the departures were so damaging, because all of the firms that left were payment firms. And if you look at the Libra Association now, with one exception, the people who are left are, they're a mix of venture capital funds, tech companies like Vodafone, blockchain startups. There's almost nobody now left with any direct experience of running a system like this. So basically, the adults have left the room. You could put it that way. Okay, so I understand what's happening, but it seems like there's a bigger idea behind all of this, a sort of a meteor thing. What is that? What's the story behind the story? So I guess the, the really big question in all this is whether uh, a private company or you know, a, a group of private companies can really sort of engineer a whole new global financial infrastructure uh, out of nothing. And one of the many reasons that cryptocurrencies haven't really taken off is that the technology that underlies them is, is pretty clunky. And they're basically a sort of anarchist's dream of a currency without any central oversight. And in order to get that anarchism into your currency, you have to design a system, you know, and this is where these blockchains come in. They're essentially very slow databases with a really clunky consensus mechanism, because instead of having one central overseer saying, you know, Ken's payment to Tim has gone through, we have to have sort of all of the ecosystem agree on who's paid what to who. And it's very hard to see how that scales up to something that can handle the sort of tens of thousands of transactions every second or more that you would need to compete with the existing payment systems. Now, maybe they can pull some kind of technical rabbit out of a hat, but there is a lot of people who study this think that to the extent that Libra really is a cryptocurrency, it's going to find it very hard to scale up for technical reasons. And to the extent that it can scale up for technical reasons, it will have to ditch some of the things that would make it a cryptocurrency. And then the other argument is, 
the regulatory one and to what extent states are prepared to allow this. And this goes right to the heart of what a nation state does. And if a particular nation state doesn't want Libra in its territory, then they have some pretty big and pretty powerful levers that they can pull to try and stop that. Would you put your money on it launching next year? I think you have to ask that question now. I mean, it would be, on the one hand, it would be embarrassing for them to, for them to row back. And they have said 2020 will be the launch date. And, you know, they're trying to inject a sense of urgency into all this. On the other hand, Zuckerberg has said, you know, this will not launch until US regulators are satisfied that it complies with all these anti-terrorist finance and know your customer laws and so on. But of course, it's not just the American regulators he, he has to satisfy. You know, Libra that was, that was restricted to the US would not be a huge amount of use. He's going to have to satisfy regulators in America, in Europe, in India, in pretty much anywhere it's going to, going to operate. And I think, again, that's a pretty big hill to climb. But of course, whether something launches and whether something you know, properly takes off and, and develops and takes flight and is used, those are sort of two different questions. So you'd put your money on it, but you wouldn't put your money in it. I don't think I'm going to be being paid in Libra anytime soon. Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Ken. And you can read more about Mark Zuckerberg's trials and tribulations in this week's Economist. And to take out a subscription, just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Next up. That is the sound of trees being pulped in a giant processing facility in Finland near a town called Anakoski. It consumes 6.5 million cubic meters of wood a year, and that equates to one large lorry load of trees every six minutes, day and night. On the face of this, such rapacious industrialization of the Finnish forest looks like the very antithesis of environmentalism. But the Metsa group who operate the Anakoski mill claims the very opposite. To find out why, I'm joined on the phone from Finland by Katarina Kampapainen, the development manager of Metsa group. Hello, Katarina. Hello, Kenneth. So first, explain to us what this mill is and why it's special. It is actually a very large wood handling site. It is the largest site handling wood in the northern hemisphere. So the Wood consumption there is quite major, but it's not just that it's big. It is, of course, what it does. So the Anikoski bioproduct mill is called a bioproduct mill um, because we want to emphasize the fact that it doesn't just make pulp as regular pulp mills do, but, but we want to use the wood as resource efficiently as possible so that we get more value out of the side streams as well. So can you explain bit by bit of the tree that you use and how you use it? Okay, so first of all, to the pulp mill, we only get the thinnings and the thin parts of the tree. So we want to ensure that the large logs go into our sawmills and where the wood also then stays in, in products that become carbon storage. So, for example, um, buildings, wooden buildings. So we put in pulp wood, we debark it, 
And part of this bark is then used to fuel the lime kiln uh, through gasification. So we can gasify it and then burn the gas in the lime kiln and then skip using heavy fuel oil. And then when the wood is chipped, uh, it goes to the digester, and then through washing and bleaching stages, drying, and then to, to the chemical pulp bales that we then can ship. But maybe most of the new, new things are then in the recovery cycle, the sulfuric acid production there, which we can do from the malodorous gases that are created in, in the system and then through that skip using any, any external sulfuric acids. But one other new product is coming in a way from wood because um, in, in wastewater plants we create sludges and typically these sludges are just combusted. But of course in, in some other fields different sludges are anaerobically digested to biogas and this is what we are doing in the bioproduct mill. So, so we have a biogas plant there and this is something completely new to the pulp and paper industry at the moment. Now, I see that this is more environmentally efficient, but is it more economically efficient too? It definitely it is. It is both. And this is a great win-win situation because the more wiser or smarter we resource efficiently we use the tree, the more value we create out of it. So there's actually a clear uh, numbers for that. If in a type typical pulp mill, we get 90% value out of the pulp and 10% comes from the rest. In bioproduct mill, it is actually only 80% value coming out of the pulp and 20% out of all of the other products. So, of course, in addition to, to these material products, we, we are a major producer of green electricity, which we sell to the Finnish grid. So that's one big part there as a, as a side product. And the bioproduct mill is, is one of the most efficient um, Mills, of course, energy-wise, since it's, it is uh, completely a new mill. Katerina, I wonder, is this a Finland story or can this be globalized? Well, I think part of this is due to how we manage forests, how they are owned in Finland. They are privately owned. They are small lots. It's kind of a mosaic structure in the forests. And there's a long tradition in Finland why it is like that. So, so for us, this is a natural way to use the trees and it, it happens to be very sustainable at the moment. So it cannot be very easily maybe transferred or copied in, in other parts of the world because there is so much tradition behind it. But of course, parts of it can. And, and definitely the way we look at the pulp mill and what you can do also continue, for example, towards textile fibers that we are doing. So just try to create ways for these sustainable fibers to go into new value chains and make the mills energy efficient, reduce the environmental impact that they have. Of course, I think the world has a lot to learn from the Finnish mills and from the Finnish industry. That's for sure. It sounds like you're like these sort of like saintly miracle executives who are saving the world one tree at a time. Well, I have to say it's a really rewarding industry to work in because the basis for the business is so good. It is the Nordic wood that we know it is grown sustainably. We know it's it's mostly 80% certified, 90% what we use is certified. It is family owned. Um, so whatever we do to the tree creates local value um, in the country. In, in, in case of Finland, the forest stock carbon stock is always growing. So no, no matter all of this industrial use, it is still growing. Wow, this is going to be really transformative. Thank you very much, Katrina. Thank you so much, Kenneth. It was a pleasure. And finally, what is the relationship between the internet and ethics? They don't have to be contradictory. They could be complementary. 
At least, that is what Damian Bradfield, a senior executive at WeTransfer, the web file sharing platform, believes. The company tries to distance itself from the tech giants in Silicon Valley by respecting user privacy. And Damien has written a book about the importance of technology and ethics called The Trust Manifesto, What You Need to Do to Create a Better Internet. And he joins me in the studio. Hello, Damien. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So let's begin here. Where did the idea for WeTransfer come from? It came from being in the media world, working in 2009, where still many things are being sent on couriers, DVDs, CD-ROMs, delivering assets all over the world. And there was no real simple way to get files from A to B. So WeTransfer is just the simplest way possible to deliver something to a client or a customer or a friend without any sign-up, without any real friction, and without any banner ads. And you know, back in 2009, it was like the peak of distraction and banner ads. It wasn't a very aesthetic internet back in 2009. Okay, so there's... No friction, no banner ads, no revenue. How do you make money? We actually broke even in 2014 already. And our money back then initially came from straight advertising, but we had just one billboard. So it was one massive ad that ran in the background of WeTransfer. We didn't harass anybody, but we just tried to really put across branding. And no one was really doing branding at the time on the internet. It was very much driven by, you know, I'm going to flash something at you, hopefully get your attention, and then you're going to click and disappear somewhere else. And our methodology was always, we just want to do something that looks aesthetically pleasing and believe that over time people will remember it, um, see it again, and be able to repeat it and click. What I love about this is that you are an intermediary of information. You manage the information flows for people, and so you sit on a lot of data. How do you use it to optimize what you do to turn it back into a product or service to the customer? So historically, we've taken a very lean approach to data, and our viewpoint was always that um, we wanted to deliver a service to our customers um, and create trust, and we believe that we do it by actually leaving people alone. And if, you, if you're in that creative sector, we, we were talking earlier on about you traveling on the train and not want to be disrupted by not having Wi-Fi, so actually you're most effective when you're not on Wi-Fi. If you're creative, the hardest thing for you to get into is a state of flow, and the easiest thing is to be distracted. Um, and our mission was to try to keep people in that state of flow so that they could just get on with making more work and use our service as and when they needed to, but actually get away from um, the distraction of closing the loop that most technology companies are into um, by being confident, just saying, you know, as a, as a high street store, the doors open, come in, use our service. If it's amazing, you'll come back and you'll tell your friends. And that's what happened. We grew organically through that, through that model. So I can understand that by not pinging people's phones with notifications that their WeTransfer has arrived or it's been downloaded. I get that. But what about using information to optimize the service, about using the data of the interactions that you're seeing to create a whole new product or service around it? Again, we were very light on data. So the way that you know, our advertising business worked for you know, nearly 10 years was really around um, looking at how we could basically zig when everyone else was zagging, the way that the advertising revenue is mostly generated online is through, um, you know, capturing people's attention. Google and Facebook, where 87 cents on the dollar goes of all marketing budgets, is based around trying to capture your, capture your attention and collect more data to get more insight. Um, and our model was very much about um, we are going to put up billboards of the web 
and allow people basically to just through recognition to, to come back. And we completely changed the way that people looked at advertising on the internet. Let's go back to the ground truth of how yep. technology companies operate and this idea of the trust manifesto. Tell me, what is the trust manifesto? It's really a book about trying to ignite some dialogue around what we can do to create a better internet. And I mean we in the collective we, me as a user of the internet, me as someone in business, and me in some way, shape, or form having something to do with government. And hit me up with your best ideas. What can we do? We really need to take stock of how we're using the internet. And I think it's important that we, when we're spending so much time on the internet, my kids 11 and 14 spend upwards of 20 hours a week you know, in some way on the web. But they treat it very differently to the way that they would do the offline world. And I think if we just consider how much time we spend in the online world and look at how much information we give away and how trusting we are of something that we don't actually trust, I think that's quite worrying. And if we just reconsidered the amount of time that we spend online in environments that we don't necessarily trust and look at what we would expect in the offline world, I think we'd have a very different web experience and we would demand more of big tech. How can we motivate people to follow that example? Or do you accept the fact that, in fact, that there's a limit to how big you can be? I think there is a limit to how big you can be. I think we've seen, we've seen companies like Facebook and Amazon probably max out in terms of how big the world will allow them to become. Um, I think people are going to take it into their own hands. You can see Apple being at the forefront of educating people with regards to privacy and how much information the apps are giving away. I think with the Google Android phones, you know, taking more than 1,200 different location points at any one time, I think people are beginning to wake up to the difference between Google and, and, and Apple in that context. Can there really be a business around doing good that's going to be scalable, or do you think you'll always be a smaller niche player amid the morass of online businesses? No, I, so the, in, uh, in my book, I reference Ben & Jerry's, and I think Ben & Jerry's is a fantastic case point that you know these two hippies in Vermont back in the 60s set up these values for how they wanted to operate. This is a company that was bought by Unilever. They've adopted you know, um, organic ingredients across all of their products. They're nearly GM-free. I think you can see the, you know, the impact of these two hippies that have, they've made over a, a massive corporation. I think we'll see the same happening through technology. People spend so much time with it, interact with it, and I think particularly around AI are concerned around how much information um, they're giving away that we will see more companies just come forward with a little bit more trust and with ethics at the, at the base. That's fascinating. Look, Damien, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.